If you have a Bible, do you want to turn to Isaiah and chapter 52? Isaiah's in the middle. If you don't know your Bible well and you just open it like that, it'll probably land somewhere near there. And we're going to be in Isaiah 52, and I'm going to read uh, from the end of Isaiah 52 and then through Isaiah 53. And I, I just, I'm in faith that God will change some people's lives permanently just through reading these verses. They are among the most powerful 15 verses in the whole Bible, and I think some people here will look back on this moment just hearing it and think, God did something in me as I heard it read. We're going to read in Isaiah 52, and beginning at verse 13, and the only things you need to know beforehand about this passage are that it's written about 700 years before Jesus died on the cross and rose again, and it's coming in towards the end of a book in which the prophet Isaiah has told us of our desperate need for rescue, and we are left asking how that might come about. That's all you need to know for now. You fill in the blanks later, but Isaiah 52, and we're going to begin at verse 13. Behold, my servants shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, His appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which hasn't been told them, they see. And that which they have not heard, they understand. Who has believed what he's heard from us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his stripes we are healed. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed, he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, and as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit. In his mouth. 
Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. It's a passage about Jesus. 700 years before he was born. And it's a story of how Jesus' sacrifice will reconcile anyone who believes in him to God by acting as a substitute. And what we're going to do, because this is heavy and because there's a lot of words in there that we don't very often use, words like transgressors, which means sinners, and iniquities, which means sins, and chastisement, which means punishment, words like that, we don't often think that way. We don't often talk like that. So because of that, I'm just going to walk through the passage again, making sense hopefully a little bit at a time and hopefully helping us all see how this chapter, you could argue, is the most important chapter in the Bible. It's the most important statement that there is in Scripture that Jesus died for you. And if you go home back to your tent this evening and you understand what it means to say that Jesus died for you, you understand why that works and how it functions in God's sight. And this will have been a success. That's all I'm after. Verse 13, of, back to chapter 52. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up. High and lifted up is what you say of somebody who's glorious. So you lift somebody up and you exalt them. And God is often high in the Bible. So he appears on top of mountains and he's high and we're low. That's often what you say. That means you're glorious. But in the case of Jesus, the words high and lifted up take two meanings. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up means, well, this servant, this representative of God is going to be glorious and up, but it also means he's going to be high and lifted up. He's going to be strung up on a cross for people to look at, and my servant is going to be both glorious and crucified for you. And you're going to be able to see both of those things at once in him. You'll see glory and exaltation, and you'll see substitutionary death for you at the same time. Jesus referred to this verse himself in John. He said, when I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to me. He's referring to this. He's saying, I am the one who will be high and lifted up. And that day as Jesus was dying and people walked past him, they would not have thought this is a glorious one. They would have thought this is a fool. This is a wanted criminal who has got what's coming to him naked and nailed, and as they mocked him and ridiculed him and looked at him and thought nothing of him, he was being lifted up in front of them. He was being glorified, just as Isaiah said he would. Verse 14, as many were astonished at you. Have you ever seen somebody whose appearance is so marred that you can't recognize who they are as a human being? I don't know if that tragedy has ever happened to you. You may have seen in the papers recently some of the acid attacks that have been happening. You seen those? Where you see somebody's face is so marred from the acid being, so, dis- 
So disfigured from having acid thrown, or happens to burn victims sometimes, tragically, that you can't recognize who they are. Their figure is so disfigured, is so scarred that you don't know who it is. Isaiah is saying, my servant, God's servant, Jesus Christ, will be like that. He will be somebody you can't even tell which person it is. His face is disfigured beyond human semblance and his form beyond the children of mankind. And then verse 15, so in this way, he's going to sprinkle many nations, which means he's going to cast his blood that will cover people and cover their sin all over the world. This guy that no one will ever have heard of, you would think in 700 years before he was born, he's going to be an irrelevance. He's going to be a tiny, unknown criminal killed in a backwater armpit of the empire that nobody cares about. He's just going to be a nothing. And Isaiah's making the claim, this man who, by the time he died, 120 people followed him and no one else, and the rest of the empire didn't know he was there. This guy is going to sprinkle with his blood every nation on earth there will not be a nation under heaven where people don't say, Jesus has saved me. And that's being said of a guy that was a total non-entity in his own lifetime. The only reason anyone knew who he was is because he'd been killed because he was claiming to be the king. And it says, kings shall shut their mouths because of him. Kings will fall silent in front of this guy. That's what will happen. There will be rulers of entire nations and empires who will confront Jesus and Jesus will win and they will fall face down in awe and honor and homage to him. It's a comment I've often heard made like this. I like it. Jesus is killed under the, if you like, the the Roman emperors are killing Jesus and there's rivalry through the first century between Jesus the criminal and the powerful Roman emperors who have names like Caligula and Nero Caesar. These days we call our dogs Nero and we call our cat food Caesar. And there's thousands of people in this room who are named after Jesus or one of his followers or one of his prophets. Thousands and thousands of you, including me. This guy that everyone was ridiculing, I was going to say got the last laugh, that kind of implies he, he enjoyed it. This guy was scorned by everybody, and yet kings came to shut their mouths. And the reason why you have, most of you are British, the reason why you have a cross on your flag is because kings eventually came to be silenced in front of this man and said, we're going we're gonna to put his crest on our flag and not ours. And the reason why when you write the date, and it says 2017, rather than some other crazy number, is because kings shut their mouths because of him. And they said, this man is the one around whose death and resurrection we should restructure the whole of history to make everybody know that it's 2017 years since he was born. Kings shut their mouths because of him. Verse 1 of chapter 53. Who has believed what he has heard from us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Now this is a strange phrase because... I don't have the arms for this. Some, some of you do. Some of you got much bigger, more muscular arms than me. But in fact, all of you do. I imagine without exception. I'm not a big guy. But the arm of the Lord 
was a phrase that was used in the Old Testament to describe God's military might and his power to destroy his enemies. It's the word you'd use when you were talking about the Exodus. Say, with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, God rescued Israel from Egypt. And what's interesting about this is that Isaiah's saying, I don't know who on earth could have seen this coming, that the arm of the Lord, the muscular military might of God, was going to look like this, which we now know is a Messiah dying naked as a substitutionary sacrifice for the whole world. That is not what you would think that the mighty military power of God was going to look like. You would assume God was going to ride into town, trash the Romans, wipe out everybody who hated him, burn them all up, and say, rah, I am the king, or something to that effect. And actually, instead he came to serve, to wash feet, and to die for them. And Isaiah is saying, who, is, who would believe this? Who would believe that the arm of the Lord looked like that? Because if you come expecting violence and you end up with kind of that, it's a bit of a shock. So I want to tell you a story about the day I got shot in the face. I got, and a bit, this is, I did get, it was with a BB gun, but, and it sounds rather lame, but it really, really hurts. If someone shoots you at about a yard away, in fact, the friend who shot me in the face, I was hanging out with him yesterday, and I was here, and he was about here. Not actually here. Uh, it was in our kitchen in Eastbourne. But he, anyway, I was standing there, and he points this BB gun, and he was trying to prove to me that it didn't have any pellets in it. And he said, I'm not kidding. You can ask him. His name is Chris Mason. He's a pastor in Leeds. He will tell you this is true. He pointed, was that a whoop for Leeds and Chris Mason? That's excellent. And he was pointing the gun, and he said, seriously, it doesn't have anything in it. Look, pulled the trigger. And again, it sounds a bit lame, but it really, really kills, like if you get shot in the face from someone like that. And of course, I did what you would do. Ah, you shot me in the face, you shot me in the face. Now, unbeknown to me, there was a, a guy who I presume had been drinking who was in the station car park behind our kitchen and was looking up to our first floor window in our flat as he was watching this scene unfold. A man points gun. This is, by the way... Preachers tell stories that sometimes are embellished and untrue. This story is not untrue. This story is completely true. And uh, the guy's down in the car park, and he rings the riot police and says, somebody's just been shot at Flat 3 10, flat ten, no, flat three ten Station Parade. And, of course, the riot police think, we're going to gear up for this. But I didn't know that because, of course, I'd just gone to bed, and so had he. Nothing happens, right? We're fine. There is a fire escape at the back of my flat, and the guy in the flat below the kitchen is given a rude awakening in the middle of the night. Um, as the riot police appear at the door, open up, open up, open up! And he's like, ooh, half asleep, three in the morning. Ooh, what is it? What? It's the police, open up! And he's thinking, what in heaven's name is happening? It unbolts this door, which we never use, lets them in through the fire escape. Sir, is there a gun in the property? Ah! Sir, is there a gun in the property? He's like, what are you talking about? And eventually he realizes, well, there is that BB gun, but they can't possibly mean that. And unfortunately, at the time, it was in his room, and he reached across and went, oh, you mean this? Get the job, the gun, drop the gun. It's like... <laughs> and, I mean, that's not how you want to be woken up at three in the morning, is it? He had a bit of a fright. And obviously, when it, they eventually figured out what had happened, it was all quite a lot of egg on face. But what I think those riot police went home thinking that day, be like, we had come prepared for full-scale battle, and we end up with this weird little plastic gun and realize the whole thing is not at all what we thought. And they probably troop home a bit going, oh, that was a bit dull. We feel a little bit foolish now. 
Isaiah is saying, who would believe that this is what the mighty military power of God would look like? That it would look like a toy gun. It would look like a dead guy strung on a tree. Who would believe it? That's not what the military power of God's supposed to, that's not what the arm of the Lord is supposed to look like. He's supposed to destroy his enemies and instead he has suffered at their hands to redeem them. Why would someone do that? To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Verse 2, he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. This is God we are talking about here. This is God made flesh in Jesus. He grew up like a root out of dry ground. God, the maker of roots and dry ground, grew up like one. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty we should desire him. He was despised and rejected, a man of sorrows and familiar with grief. Do you know sorrows? I mean, really. I didn't as a teenager. I have, I guess, since a few times, but I think my life was quite straightforward at the age most of you are. I hadn't, obviously, things which were hard, things which made me sad, but I don't think I'd known real heart-wrenching sorrows, the light that you just spend the rest of your life thinking, if only that hadn't happened. I now do. I'm a pastor. I meet lots of people like that. And I, I just think there is something about the person Jesus is that only people in grief and sorrows can really see. He doesn't, Jesus doesn't come for the winners, mainly. He doesn't come for, primarily, I mean, he will save winners as well. Anyone's welcome. But the people who really get him, the people who see him and say, I've just been in the darkest place and he's the only one who cared and I love him for it. The people like, who say things like that are usually those who are themselves men and women of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And if you're one of them, Jesus wants to say, I feel your pain like no one else can. And I came to experience it and to take it all upon myself. I'm a man of sorrows. And if you're a person who's never known that, wonderful. I'm pleased for you. I genuinely am. But I want you to know that as and when you do face those things in life, Jesus will come along and you will experience him in those places of darkness like even now in the light you don't. Because he's a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And then he says, as one from whom men hide their faces. Don't imagine that that's a reference to playing peekaboo. Like I do that with my kids, you know, and you hide your face and they go, ooh, ooh. That's not, we're not talking about peekaboo. We're talking more about the way that you might hide your face from somebody who you regarded as completely vile. The way, the way that our society might regard a pedophile. That's the way Isaiah is saying people in his day regarded Jesus. They were disgusted by what he had said and done. And they looked the other way. They didn't want to look at him. Why? Well, verse 4, surely... He has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. So Jesus isn't being treated this way and being sorrowful and full of grief because he has done something wrong. Isaiah said, no, he's done this because he's carried our sorrows and griefs. And if he hadn't come as a man of sorrows and griefs, he wouldn't have been able to carry our burdens. He didn't have a burden of his own. He could have he could have stayed in glory, Father, Son, and Spirit, having a party forever and ever. But as we've already sung this evening, he didn't want 
heaven without us, and so he brought heaven down. And of course, that sounds lovely, but what that means is he came to take all the griefs and sorrows that we've experienced, all the betrayal, all the torture, all the oppression, all the injustice, all the mockery, the ridicule. Have you ever wondered why Jesus had to die naked? Probably didn't think about it very much. There had to be something so fundamentally shameful about his death as if to say, this is the shame and the disgust and the reviling of the whole world landing on this man. So that nobody could look at him strung to the cross and say, yeah, he doesn't know what it's like. The whole human race could look at him and say, I may dislike Christianity, but I cannot argue with the fact that this, if this is what God is truly like, God is marvelous. I might choose not to believe it, but if God is like him, that changes everything. He has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, and then, in some ways, the crucial verse of the whole passage, verse 5, but he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. He was chastised, which means punished, to bring us peace. And by his stripes, as in the wounds on his back, we are healed. And all four of those lines have the same form. They say, he experienced this terrible penalty as a substitute for us. Sometimes people call that penal substitution. That's the fancy term for it. As in, he experienced wounding, crushing for us, for our, for our, for us. So he experienced a penalty. He experienced terrible, terrible things, unspeakable things that even the movies can't capture. But he did it for us as our substitute, our sin, our transgression. It was mine. It was yours on him. And there was a man that day who experienced the power of that substitution for him like no one else. And his name was Barabbas. So he's a guy who has committed a genuine crime. He's, he's been involved in an uprising in the city, which happened from time to time. And he'd killed people. And so he was a bad guy. And he was in jail. And I imagine jails in those days were probably not as nice as they are today, and they're not that nice now. So he's in jail, and he's chained, and he's arms behind back, I don't know, shackled in his feet, and he's sitting there behind a grill waiting for somebody to arrive and say, we're now going to go and kill you in the most gruesome way that we've ever figured out how to kill someone. And that's his day. That's his Friday, right? It's Friday morning dawns. That's what he's going to do. What, in, the, in Barabbas's diary, die terribly slow, agonizing death in front of Jerusalem. That's, that's all he's got to do. And then there's this bizarre moment where the crowd are asking for Pilate to say, Barabbas can go free and Jesus can die instead. And all Jesus has to do to get out of it is just to say, yeah, okay, I think this is a bit of a misunderstanding. To be honest, I'm not really the thing they're saying. I'd really rather just go home to my family. How's that? But he doesn't. He says nothing. And as a result, Jesus is sentenced to death and Barabbas gets a knock on the door of his cell saying, Barabbas, you're not going to believe this, but somebody has be become your substitute. So we're going to take these shackles off. And he's like, I'm sorry, I'm terribly sorry, what? Or words to that effect. And then they say, right, no, I'm seriously, chains off. All these things that we've got your hands tied behind your back, no, you take those off as well. You're free to go. What? I thought I was about to suffer an agonizing death at the hands of the Romans for several hours. No. You're going to go home. 
and tell your wife you got lucky. Why? Why? Oh, because somebody else has substituted for you. And he is going to be pierced for your transgressions. He's going to be crushed for your iniquities. And the punishment that should be upon you is actually going to be upon him. And by his stripes, you're going to be healed. Go home and enjoy your dinner. I don't know whether Barabbas stayed. I've often wondered this. There's no way of knowing. If I'd been him, I think I might have. I think I might have been so shocked that someone would do that that I might have just gone, who on earth is this man? That they're talking? Do you know who we're talking about? Oh, it's some bloke called Yeshua from up in Galilee. I don't know anything about him. Just He's over there. And I wonder if he followed the kind of line of people taking him out to the place of execution. And I wondered if with every lash of the whip and with every nail that was driven in to his feet, Barabbas went, that's supposed to be me. That's, that's me in here. The name Barabbas means son of the father, Bar Abbas. And he experienced the true son of the father standing in his place, redeeming him, getting him go free, And then if Barabbas stayed or not, he then goes home to his wife and he just says, I'm home. Honey, I'm home. And she says, what are you doing here? And he says, in my place, condemned, he stood. He was pierced for my transgressions and crushed for my iniquities. And I don't know if anybody in history will ever have seen a substitutionary act like that and experienced quite so vividly what it means to say Jesus died for me. But friends... That's you. You're Barabbas. So am I. I was just sitting down there in the worship, and my friend Sarah came up to me, and she said, she didn't know what I was speaking on. And she said, I just feel like God, I had this picture of somebody being shackled with their arms behind them. And I felt like God wanted to say in what you're going to preach that God is going to come and powerfully break the shackles because there is no reason for them to fear, and they can stand free. And I, as I heard it, I thought, do you know what? We're, I nearly cried, actually. I was, we, are, we are Barabbas. We have the shackles. We have straight jackets on. And Jesus, the substitute, comes, and he breaks them, and he says, go home to your families and tell them what God has done. And we go home to our families, and we, they say, who did this? And we say, some guy called Jesus, Jesus of Nazareth, he substituted for me. Now, verse 6 then develops this, and it says, all of us like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. It's interesting, isn't it? We all think we've gone our own way, but actually we've gone the same our own way as everyone else. You ever notice that? Rebellious people all rebel in the same way. I don't know if you ever thought about that. The most unoriginal thing to do is to be like, yeah, I hate everything that God says because what happens is we all turn away to our own way like sheep. You ever seen sheep? They all go their own way. Oh, I'm going to go this way. Oh, do you know what? I'm going to go that way as well. And they all just walk off the set together. Isaiah says, we've done that. I've done that. I was the most unoriginal rebel in history, except for many of you probably. We all turn away. And, verse 6, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Which means that the Lord has put onto the servant, Jesus, all of the sin that I have committed and that you have committed all of it on him, such that anybody who trusts him, Jesus 
acts as the substitute and takes the full force of all of the sin that I have ever committed in order that I might be righteous so that he becomes as guilty as I was and I become as innocent as he is. That's the gospel. That's what happens. Now, I've heard this told badly, and I'm going to give you three ways of telling it, which I hope get a bit better than the other one. The, the way that I heard it told a lot is the story, and you have to be very careful here with your understanding of God, because this is a story I heard, and you may have heard it as well, but I think it's awful. Sorry, if you use this picture, I don't think it's good. And the picture is that Jesus is like a kid who's playing on a bridge, okay, narrow bridge over a ravine. Have you heard this picture? Right, Jesus is a child playing in the ravine, uh, playing on the bridge above the ravine, and God is a bus driver with a busload full of us. And as he approaches the ravine and the bridge, he realizes that he's going too fast to swerve or avoid the child, so his choice is to mow down the child or to crash the bus and kill all the people. And so God decides, I'm going to kill the child. And that's what he does. That is a terrible picture of what it means for Jesus to be our substitute. And the reason is because it implies two things that are completely wrong. One of them is that God is a little bit like a speeding bus driver who can't swerve, which is not a great picture of God. And the other one is that the person who lays the iniquity on the servants and the servants are completely different people and the, and the kid playing in the, in the street has no idea what's coming. So I want to encourage you, if you've ever used that picture, abandon it. Don't. It's wrong. It's not a helpful way of picturing it. This is a slightly better one. In fact, it's much better. You may have read this story um, about these two brothers, young brothers, kind of maybe one early teens, another one a little bit younger, 10 or 11, and they leave home to go and play out down, they live reasonably near the sea, and they go, leave home and go and play, and they go together to an area where there are these huge dunes, like big, big old sand dunes, but there's warning signs on the sand dunes saying, you mustn't climb the dune because these are very unstable and you could get a sandslide if you do. And it's a tragic story because the brothers decide they're going to go climbing on them anyway. The, younger, the older brother's saying, I'm not sure we should do this, but the younger brother goes, yeah, yeah, let's do it, and off he goes. Anyway, a few hours later, the parents are worried about where their boys are because they don't know. And uh, the boys haven't come home. So the parents gather, you know, ring around, and they say, I think we're just going to go looking for them. And they do. And it's early evening. It's still light. The early evening, they head out. And after getting more and more frantic, as you would, they eventually see where the little sand slide has happened, and they see a face in the sand. And it's the younger brother. And they run to the younger brother. And he's passed out. And they begin to swing all the sand off him, scooping away, scooping away, scooping away. And he's going to eventually get him down. And when the sand comes down to about his waist, he revives, he comes to out of unconsciousness. And the, the mum is like, my son, I'm so glad you're okay. Son, where is your brother? And the boy says, I'm standing on his shoulders. That's what a substitute does. A substitute comes to you in your weakness and he stands alongside you and he dies in place of you to lift you up to the freedom that you didn't deserve. And he takes, if you like, the penalty of your choice. There's two illustrations for you. The third one, I'm going to get my friend Lennox up here and hopefully he'll be able to help. And uh, Lennox is basically... 
if you kind of, I imagine, let's welcome Lennox, right? I'm, I'm, if God, Morgan, God, God is like Morgan Freeman, right? Lennox is my friend who most resembles in his stature and gravitas Morgan Freeman. Now, Lennox is God. Uh, he's not really, but in this illustration, Lennox is God, and I'm you, and I'm me, right? And what I've done is I've lived a life in which I have accumulated an absolute bin load of unmentionable stuff that I have accumulated simply by living a sinful life, living for myself. Now, this is quite, this is an authentic bin. This is a true story. I found it out there, and I asked permission to take it. And at the time I found it, uh, there was brown water in it up to about here and a broom sticking out of it saying, toilet use only. So I don't even want to think where this bin has been today, but it's absolutely full of stuff. My life has really been a story of filling up the bin of judgment and sin over my own life. I have basically continually done things that are awful. I've done things that are selfish. I've been proud. I've been greedy. I've been lustful. I've been boastful. I've been arrogant. I've been self-centered. I've worshiped myself. I haven't cared about what God said. I've lived for me. And in doing that, I have mounted up an enormous rain, a bin load of junk that by rights needs to be poured over my head. I need to face justice for what I've done. And God, in any other religion, God would simply say, I'm going to pour this over your head. This is what you deserve. And I would have to be, I, he would be right. This is exactly what I deserve. I, that bin is full of the filth. And I don't even want to tell you about many of the things I've done, but that bin is full of it. And it's about to be poured over my head. And that is by rights what ought to happen. Except in Christianity where God himself becomes a human being simply in order that he might be able to stand alongside me, reconcile me to God, and instead of pouring it over my head, pour it entire contents over his own head in order to atone for my sin. As he does, the bin of God's judgment over my life is empty. The bin of God's judgment over my life is emptied over Jesus Christ at the cross because the one who became flesh is the one against whom I have sinned. And therefore, he is the only person who's entitled to pour it over anybody, and he put it over himself. At the cross, he absorbed the full consequences of the wrath, the punishment, the judgment, all of the tragedy. God made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, that in him we might become the righteousness of God with no wrath left, and there is no condemnation. No condemnation. Look for those who are in Christ Jesus. Thanks, man. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he didn't open his mouth. Verse 7, like a lamb that's led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent. You notice that theme in the Gospels? Have you ever read the Gospel story? I hope you, many of you have. You're reading the Gospel story you think, why is Jesus so quiet? Jesus is the wittiest guy who ever lived. Every time someone asks him a difficult question, he's got a better question. He bamboozles and outfoxes and outdebates everybody. He's the smartest debater who ever lived. And yet here he is with people asking him really very simple questions. Are you the Christ? Do you think you're the king? And he just says, you said it. You said it. 
you say that I am. Or he says nothing at all. One of the strangest features of the gospel story is its weird silence when it comes to Jesus at the cross. And it's because Isaiah said, he's going to be silent like a sheep before shearers. Verse 8, by oppression and judgment, he was taken away. It's like, Romans said it of him. You and I said it of him. Get him away from me. I don't want him. I don't want him to be anywhere near me. This disgusting, sick, twisted excuse for a man. Get him out of my sight. He's pathetic. That's what we said. That's what the crowd said. That's what Rome said. He was taken away by oppression and judgment. Verse 9, and they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death. Of course, Jesus actually died between two wicked people and was buried in the grave of a rich guy. Even though he had done no violence. I'm not sure there's a person in history who has done more to fight and overthrow violence than Jesus Christ. And yet he dies the most violent death there is. Verse 10. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put into grief. This isn't ultimately because human beings said, I've got a good idea, let's kill God. This is ultimately because God himself said, I've got a good idea, let's save sinners. Let's become like them. Let's die for them. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. That's you guys, by the way, and many others. He shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Verse 11, out of the anguish of his soul, he will see and be satisfied. So Jesus is on the cross, and there's a thought bubble coming out of him. Right? There's thought bubbles for everyone at Calvary, right? The crowd, just imagine it. You've got a freeze frame at the cross. You've got the guy dying to the left of Jesus going, oh, I'm not really sure who this guy is, but I think he might be about to forgive me. And you go on the other side saying, no, he's not. He's an absolute fool. I don't know why anyone's listening to him. And you've got a centurion saying, oh, I hope we can get this guy dead so we can go home and have some tea. And there's all sorts of other people there with thought bubbles. The thought bubble of Jesus says, among other things, I can see my offspring. I can see the people for whom this blood will avail. I can see the people this will rescue, and it brings me delight. Out of the anguish of my soul, I can see, and I am satisfied by what this will achieve. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be counted righteous. Many, many. Look around you. Many people through the suffering of this righteous one, many shall be counted righteous. In Elijah's day, just before Isaiah wrote this, 100, 150, 200 years before, in Elijah's day, there were 7,000 believers in Israel. Just 7,000. That was it. By the time Isaiah wrote this, Judah was the only, one tribe was left out of all 12. Right? Judah was the only one left. And Isaiah said, in doing this, what God's servant's going to do is he's going to make many to be counted righteous. Not 7,000, not one tribe, many. Around the world today, there are Literally billions, billions of people who have been counted righteous by the suffering of the innocent one, by the substitutionary death of Jesus Christ. And they all look different. Some of them look like this. There'll be a picture on the screen. Some of them do look like that, actually. Some of them look like this. Yeah? I don't know how many of us go to churches where people worship like that. Probably not many. Some of us do. Some of them look like this. It's a bit more familiar probably, but totally different part of the world. Some of them look like this. Chinese house churches. Probably a hundred million of them look roughly like that. 
in different ways. Reading, studying the Bible somewhere in China. Some of them look like this on songs of praise. Some of them look like this. Worshipping in stadiums in Latin America or Korea or wherever it might be. Some of them look like this. I've been to churches that look like that in Anglican churches in Africa. They, my word, these guys know how to sing. Right? Some of them look like this. Standing outside. You might, I disagree with a lot of these people about a lot of things, by the way, but they're worshipping the Jesus who died for them, who substituted for their sin, and whose blood covers their sin just as much as it covers mine. Because it's his blood... That does the work. He will sprinkle many nations. Many will be encountered righteous. And do you know what? Some of them even look like this. Some of them look like this. Many, many, many will be counted righteous because of the substitutes who is going to die for them and whose blood is more powerful than the sin and shame and stupidity of human beings. And finally, verse 12, therefore, God says, I will divide him a portion with the many and he shall divide the spoil with the strong because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for, that means praise for, the transgressors. That's why God will exalt the Son And Father, Son, and Spirit together will rejoice in what they have achieved at the cross. Because he poured out his life, his soul for you. He was numbered with you. He was counted with you personally as well as corporally. He bore your sin and your shame and your punishment instead of you. So that you didn't have to and the bin is empty. And he now prays for you, makes intercession for you on a daily basis, asking the Father, strengthen this person. They face challenge, temptation. They, have the, they, have, they risk falling away if you don't stand in the gap. And then Jesus prays and says, I have prayed for you like I prayed for Peter, that your faith will not fail. Now come on, be strong. And as he does, and ask the Father for help. The Father sends the Spirit and... God, Father, Son, and Spirit, to carry us through life, sustaining us in the face of these challenges because the Son is praying for us and having poured out his soul for you, died for you, substituted for you, and praying for you now, he invites you to follow, to surrender, to take up your cross, which for almost none of us will likely mean actually being killed. For some of us, it will mean being very embarrassed. And for others, It will mean doing things and saying things that look shameful to people we want to think well of us. But Jesus invites you, invites me to say, come and join me on the Calvary Road. Come and walk with me because one day, I having died for you, I'm going to renew all things. And when I do, I want you to be with me. I want you having experienced some of what I experienced to now experience a world that's utterly free of anything dark or sad or dead ever again. And the only reason that I can guarantee you you will inherit that is because I, the righteous servant, suffered in your place so you didn't have to. I bear the sin of many and I make intercession for the transgressors. Amen. Some of us at this point, and some of us in worship generally, we may want to kneel. We may just want to sit and think. We may want to dance. We may, I, don't know, I don't know how you will want to respond, and I'm sure Neil and Shireen will help us with that, but we're going to thank God for sending us a substitute. He was pierced. Friends, 
He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities, so you don't have to be. Father, we thank you for the cross. Jesus, we thank you for the cross. Holy Spirit, we thank you for the cross. We thank you that this, for all its beauty, was not the last word, that actually even having done this, you then rose again as if to demonstrate that the power of sin had not just been poured out, it had been broken, it had been defeated entirely, and there is now new life for all who trust in you. We thank you for this message. We thank you for saving every last one of you, who tr- uh, one of us who trusts in you, and we now acknowledge the beauty of this cross and ask that you would empower us to live lives that honor it, treasure its power, and live in total freedom from the shackles. Lord, like Barabbas, may we recognize that the shackles off our feet have been broken and we can dance. May we, like Barabbas, recognize this is amazing grace. This is unfailing love that you would take my place, that you would bear my cross. May we see it. May we sing it. May we know it. May we own it. And we pray in Jesus' name, help us live it to the glory of God. Amen.